No, it's, it's good. I, I want to move, move on to the next topic. So before we talk about prayer and the Mass itself or the the Torah service um, or the, you call it a liturgical service when you guys don't do Mass, correct? Divine Liturgy. Um, I want to talk about the role of women and the way that the churches are structured. Um, so I went to a Bad Mitzvah. It's, um, it's kind of out of the ordinary for Orthodox Jews to have uh, a rite of passage for girls. In, in traditional Judaism, you do one for boys when they turn 13, and they read from the Torah, and they are considered uh, males. Uh, they're considered adults, and now they're responsible for the commandments. Uh, there's been a movement to, to do it for girls, and they usually do it at, at age 12, and depending on how progressive or how traditional, um, is different, or either it's just the same, so it equalizes both sexes, or is different and it kind of modifies the situation. So I'm so I'm there at the service and as I'm walking out, there's a family there who were visiting, and the lady was furious that at this traditional Orthodox uh, synagogue, the men and the women sit separately. And and she was a, a modern Catholic, and she was saying that she had never seen such a um, unfeminist. Um, set up in any congregation she had attended from any religion. And I didn't want to get into a debate with her, but I attended a, a Eastern Orthodox Coptic church, and the men and the women were seated separately. And then um, I also pointed to her that um, Roman Catholic women in Mexico, the, the old school ones, the elders, they wear a veil over their heads when they enter the, the church or the cathedral, and that Orthodox women wear a head covering or of some some type. So um, in the Eastern Orthodox community, um, are men and women seated together as a family? Is there some type of division, um, kind of like it was in the temple in Jerusalem between the and and to modern audiences, just because there's division, that doesn't mean that there's discrimination because. As far as I know, the, they were in, in an equal plane. Like the the men were on one side facing the temple, and the women were on the other side facing the temple. They weren't in the back or in the kitchen. Uh, there are some places where they do that, but that's a different subject. So, um, how is the seating and the arrangement for men and women to interact while there's service going on in the Eastern communities? Well, in a uh in Eastern Orthodoxy, first of all, the seating is an interesting question because many Orthodox churches don't even have seats. Um, our church, we have pews around the sides for the elderly and the infirm, or um, if you want to sit down because you're tired of standing, but our posture for prayer is standing, and occasionally um, our services call for prostrations to the ground. Um, where you you put your face on the ground and you lay down. To prostrate means to lay down flat on the ground uh, in in worship, correct? Yeah. So uh, sometimes our services call for prostrations where we lay flat on the ground as a sign of you know penance or a sign of reverence or something like that. So a lot of our churches don't even have pews in them, and so what usually happens is families stand together and the kids run around wherever they do and um, 
you know, depending on how close you are with the people in your church, um, which is typically pretty close. I mean, orthodoxy is like being part of a family and the kids will just like run over and play with the other kids or they'll be with another family or something and they'll come back. But that all depends on, you know, how open your church is to that thing and how on page or on the same page all the parents are there. But when it comes to, like, the distinction of the sexes, which is your initial question, um, I would say there's only one distinction between the sexes in a church, and that's between the altar and the name. And part of what I mentioned earlier was that we look at the altar as, um, as the Virgin Mary's womb and Christ alone was carried in that womb. And so in our churches, we don't have women behind the altar. That's not to say that women don't have a role in our churches or that that being behind the altar is somehow better, or it's not. It's just different, and that's part of how our... But you need to know, like, what is the liturgical symbolism going on with the architectural symbolism, you know, if you don't know that that's Mary's womb there and that the coming and going there is of her son, you know, then you're going to miss, you know, the, the sexual symbolism there. And liturgy is dramatic, you know, like there are roles that people are cast for and some people are more fit for certain roles than others. But when it comes to like the priesthood, and I was thinking about this a little bit as you were talking about bar and bat mitzvahs. Um, some people might say that the um, the priest, like men, are uniquely fitted for the priesthood, and that the priesthood needs men in order to lead it, because only a man could lead the service or something like that. You know, they might say things like because men have deeper voices. And so, in louder voices, and so our voices carry much further than women's do, and they're, you know, great for, you know, filling up the space in a whole big church or something like that. You know, they might make all of these things that say that the priesthood needs men. However, I think it's completely the opposite. I think that men need the priesthood, and that's why we're u- uniquely suited to it. Where Socially, men might be known for being very objective and very decisive and um, very strong. We're physically stronger than women. We're louder, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And then that, that man is cast in the role of being a priest where you're supposed to go to confession with this guy who is stronger, louder, <laughs> more objective, more judgmental, you know, like all of these things, he, he, it's almost like we rely on the paradox of what a man is expected to be so that when you're confronted with a priest, you realize, and the priest himself realizes, I'm not supposed to be what a man is in this world supposed to be. Where if men are supposed to be very judgmental and very objective, he's the guy who says, mercy, I forgive everything. 
you know, I'm here for absolution. I'm not going to hold that against you. If men are supposed to be loud and strong, he's going to be gentle and he's going to be quiet. And all of these things, which kind of come naturally to women, um, generally speaking, depending on your culture. And I think that actually leads to some really healthy sexual dynamics um, between men and women in the Orthodox Church where um, the women I know are very strong and like, and the men I know, they're also very strong, but they're also very compassionate where there's this odd thing of because they respected the fact that there is a difference between men and women and that they looked at the church and realized like the church has different ways of cultivating our masculinity or counteracting our masculinity um, that it's really benefited as well. You know, like the thing I was thinking about with your bat mitzvah example was maybe the reason why women were never expected to go through a bat mitzvah at the age of 12 or something like that is because um, they have their own rite of passage into womanhood, which happens to them biologically, where men had to invent this ritual where we read and we teach and we do all of these kinds of things. Because nothing happens to us physiologically, really. I mean, maybe you're for shame. But, you know, I, I just think, like, in our in our tradition, at least, uh, we recognize that there's a difference between the sexes, but we're not necessarily trying to reinforce the obvious ones. Before we move on, I wanted to, to share that um, there's a tradition regarding the, the giving of the Torah at Sinai where... Um, it kind of there's two versions. One where God is the bridegroom and the people are the bride, and then another one where Moses is the bridegroom and the Torah. I mean, the people are the bride and then the Torah is the wedding document. So there's this thing about um, the people are feminized in the sense of like, uh, I guess in Christianity there's the idea that the church is the feminine and Christ is the masculine and they marry. So uh, within the theological framework, there's this, the roles are there for a purpose and they convey um, a union that that doesn't, it's not about the lack of equality or the innate um, worth of the person, but it's about um, the relationship and the, and the marriage itself being um, sanctified or, or lifted up uh, with the two members in the marriage, the spouse and the spouses. So, um, Joe, when um, you're going to come out as a hero with our very uh, progressive um, audience because the Catholic Church has gone through a lot of change and a lot of progressive, um, what would you call them, um, enactments or... Um, throwing the baby with the bad water. But the reason that I, I want to make a joke before we move, move on, um, I think that without women, uh, modern Catholic churches wouldn't exist. And and the reason that I say that is because uh, some of the interactions that I've had with priests or with people in the Catholic community, uh, the women are, in a sense, the elders. Like the women, I guess it's the same in a lot of Protestant churches, um, since, since in most cases women are more spiritual, 
you see more involvement of the women that you see of men. Like there's very few men that, that you catch at church on a Wednesday night. You see tons of women. So it seems that some of the modern churches uh, have a stronger, um, um, what is it, a membership of women and, and the men uh, are limited in, in their involvement. Uh, would you see that as true? And is it back to what uh, Sam was saying, that, that women have different gifts and different abilities that kind of hold up the, the church together and then it makes they support the priests and they support the other uh, leaders that, that just happen to be from a different gender? Or? I think well, it really depends on the, the parish that you go to and the roles that people decide to take. The um, uh, Catholic education is mostly run by women, I would say. So that gives it a more feminine character. A lot of people say in the church that things have become more feminized since Vatican II. Um, and there's, so there's a, some pushback against that feminization. You see that there's over-feminization, you, people would say, in um, like the type of music you listen to. You know, ran through the, uh, the acoustic 60s and 70s. Um, and so, like when I was growing up, there was a uh, you know, men's groups that were being formed and, and a focus on trying to recapture the masculine. And that still continues uh, to this day. So there's kind of like, I, I really like what Sam was saying, and um, I think it's, or what, what Sam was saying about um, how men need the, need the priesthood, and I would say that's true when I was in the community of St. John, like the types of the men that I met, um, the priests that were there were very much men, but very much uh, strange men because they were just so joyful um, and kind, um, and not as as they them as they would they themselves would say in Saint John sort of lingo is that you blossom in a different way um, when you and. It seems like a really feminine thing to say, but a philosophical term that uh, we throw around, like, you develop differently uh, when you're religious in your identity um, in general, but also as a man. Um, when your end is God and your God is, is Father God, who is uh, all-loving, um, all-merciful, and yet all-just. Um, so... I think the there's definitely in the parishes that I've been to. Um, I think there is an underappreciation. There's there's not as much involvement by men as there is by women um, for many different reasons. I think a lot of women who are kind of running. I think part of it is because it's an American culture. You have this. Um, we have this uh, sort of feminization in American culture, uh, which has been lots of really amazing things, um, but we don't have, we don't need to fall into these stereotypes that we had in American culture in the 50s anymore, and so it's, it's the American culture has shifted, so has the Catholic culture within the church, even though the role of the priest is made the same, um, as far as not only going to be priests. I don't see women becoming priests in the Catholic Church ever, but then again, I never thought um, Pope uh, Francis would 
say certain things that he has. Um, so, you know, anything, kind of anything can happen. Um, the, the role of women in the Catholic Church uh, is not uh, relegated to um, just playing a part in the liturgy. Like, you, women can be, as a child, they can now be altar servers ever since Vatican II. They can play a role as um, Eucharistic ministers, as a sacristan to prepare things for Mass, um, in catechesis and education. And then uh, the, the biggest role is uh, to be uh, a religious, so to be a, a sister or a nun. Um, and it's not necessarily dogma or, or doctrine in the Catholic Church, but there's uh, theology, and um, in my experience in the community, John, they would make jokes about how the women religious are the ones that are uh, keeping them alive uh, through their prayers. Um, because, like, as you say, uh, women tend to be more spiritual. I think it's, I think that's true. Um, and the contemplative life in the Catholic world um, is is growing for women uh, right now, which is really cool. And they have a special, they have a special and unique role, and I think it's something that should be celebrated more often. Uh, but at the same time, so is the, I think, to the role of motherhood should be celebrated just as much. Yeah, and just real quick, um, you mentioned the women being teachers um, in Jewish tradition. Uh, that's also an aspect of that. Mothers are the ones who teach the commandments to the children, so they have to be as knowledgeable as the men to be able to impart the tradition onto the children. So, uh, in Christian terms, it would be that catechesis or that um, you know Sunday school or Hebrew school. In the sense, uh, responsibility is a, is a daily thing for women to. Uh, impart those values and those teachings to the children. Um, so now move, moving on to prayer and fasting. Um, one thing that happened when the temple was destroyed in 70 uh, of the Common Era was that the, the temple sacrifices cannot be performed anymore. And there's rules regarding where can they be done so you can't really do them in a different location. And Jews were banned from Jerusalem and through different periods. So what the rabbis said that now, um, prayer and fasting were forms of sacrifice or forms of uh, kedoshim or uh, korban. A korban is coming close to God, but it's also the same term for sacrifice. So, um, well, korbana, korbana is also the Arabic and Syriac word for liturgy. Oh, wonderful. Um, so... So in traditional Judaism, you pray Monday, I mean, you pray morning, um, midday, or afternoon, and at night, and that's uh, in correlation to the three times a day that they would sacrifice animals at the temple. Um, in our previous conversation, Sam, you mentioned, um, you know, morning prayers, uh, afternoon prayers, and night prayers in the um, Eastern Orthodox Rite. Um do you know if there's any connection with uh, the times of day that they used to uh, make offerings in the temple? 
Um, I don't know necessarily between uh, how that corresponds to the offerings of the temple, but I know that it was, you know, an established practice, you know, uh, that people were doing prayers at certain times of day. And that's because, you know, the, the worship of the synagogue was, you know, already rather established throughout the the time, you know, in between the building of the second temple and then, you know, also with the fallout of losing that temple. Um, so when it came to the early Christians who were uh, Jewish, uh, if that was already established, then they would, you know, continue to do that. Where I think we, we pray about uh, three, I mean, I don't know how exactly you want to break it up. Some people do three times a day, twice a day, five times a day, seven times a day, depending on what you want to call um, your hours of prayer. Our main thing is that we have a matin service in the morning, a vesper service in an evening, and then after that, you know, maybe you have a compliment service at night, um, and then on top of that, you might have uh, the prayers of first, third, or sixth hour during the midday that you might do. Um, and then you have liturgy, which actually is not part of um, the cycle of time. We look at liturgy as eternal. So you can do liturgy anytime, technically. Um, but one thing that I would also say is the way that we approach prayer is very... I mean, every Orthodox is a monastic to a degree. And so we got our our prayers, our, um, uh, our fasting, you know, all of this stuff came out of monastic practice initially. So, for instance, we fast from meat, dairy, olive oil, wine, um, and eggs on Wednesdays and Fridays. And Wednesday, because that was the day that Judas betrayed Jesus, and Friday, because that's when Jesus died. And on top of that, we'll do the 40 days before Christmas, the 57 days before Easter. And then, you know, we we look at fasting as a way of um, purging the body. It's healthy for you. Um, also, not introducing more violence into the natural world by killing animals. Um, when you're a professed monastic in orthodoxy, you never eat meat again. Um, so you never have to even kill an animal for your sustenance anymore. Um, but one of the things that also monastics have, that every orthodox has to a degree, is they have their rules of prayer where the abbot says, or the spiritual father of this monastic, will talk to them about what they need to do, and they'll give them prayers to say. And for most people, their spiritual father might say, um, you know, pray this in the morning, pray this at night. Or um, once a day, make sure you say this prayer somewhere. You know, it, everyone's prayer rule is a little bit different. And... Whenever we go to confession, a priest will ask us, what's your prayer rule up right now? And he might change it, you know, to help you based on what you're going through in your life. 
Um, and so those are just, you know, prayer, fasting, and then almsgiving, you know, giving back to the poor, um, giving to the church, um, finding ways to serve in the church or in your community. Those are monastic practices that we just apply to everybody. Um, in the Psalms, it says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Um, the humbled heart he would not despise. Yeah, we, we pray that once a day. In, um, so, you know, in, there's all this stuff about uh, repentance and the process of repentance during Yom Kippur and the Jewish community. Um, how about you uh, with the Roman Ca- uh, Catholic community? Is there, like, I know that there's different terms that we use. You know, in, in Judaism, we would say what's required or what's commanded. Is there things that are uh, necessary or important to do every day as, as just... Um, uh, a member of the Catholic Church, or is it, you know, attending Mass? Like, what would be um, the way that a traditional lifestyle for, for a Catholic person would be um, during any day? Uh, Joe? It's a really good question, because uh, if you became, you know, someone wanted to become Catholic uh, tomorrow, and... Um, you, we were talking, you know, to sit down and talk about that. That would look uh, different depending on the person that you were talking to. You might get a different answer from each, from a different priest, from different um, person who's leading catechists or catechesis or helping bring people in the church, um, which boils down to a, a couple things like being attentive uh, to people's uh, personalities being attentive to what their lifestyle is, what the demands on their life is, kind of like spiritual direction, you know, with them and, and um, helping them figure out what would be best for them. But like the bare minimum um, to spiritual life in the Catholic Church is to attend Mass uh, on Sundays um, and to go to go every Sunday. And to and to have a holy days of obligation, so Easter, Christmas, Feast of the Assumption. There's one. There's one up. And then my my question is like: You wake up in the morning. Um, do you say the prayer of Jesus? Do you pick up a missile and you go through it? Do you have a prayer book? Um, what what is um, suggested for for a daily prayer life? I'll say it this way. When I was in the community of St. John, we would wake up and have a uh, silent prayer. We did the liturgy of the hours. So if you're... If you're religious practice, um, what their schedule is going to be like, prepare for the priests, for the brothers, and that's going to change depending on what the demands are on, on those priests and brothers with their obligations that they have. I think in, if, if you're just a person, just a regular Catholic person, it's going to be um, wake up and say a prayer. You know, wake up and pray to God in, in some way. Open your heart up um, to God and listen. Spend time in 
silent prayer or spend time, yeah, open up the missile, read the readings for the day, read some scripture for that day, spend time in meditation, um, meditating over scripture or meditating over using saying the Jesus prayer or a prayer that maybe God has put uh, on your heart that the Holy Spirit's leading you to pray that day, um, pray that, um, ask for guidance, um, and continue uh, continue with today. Go to Mass if you can. Pray the Rosary if you can every day. Um, but definitely spend some time in Scripture every day. Um, and then another trade to uh, become a reader, become a Eucharistic minister, um, help out with education part, help out with uh, putting on a meal or being part of some parish ministry. So that you can part, you can participate in the life of the church in a more meaningful way for yourself, but also because uh, prayer is a communal act, and not just an individual act. So when we pray, we pray with uh, every other Christian and all the saints. Which, theologically uh, speaking, might get a little sticky. Uh, some people might raise some questions: Well, are we praying to the same God if we're in different religions? Um, which is a whole different topic, but. Uh, yeah, I would say those those are some uh, some really basic things. Do acts of charity every day, um, you know, towards your towards your fellow man. There's different lots lots of different lots of different options. I think uh, it's very diverse and it's it's very uh, particular whether you're raised in your homeschool and then you in a Catholic family that has a lot, a lot of Catholic traditions uh, involved in it, or if you're uh, a single person out in the world, it's um, look very different. Sam, in our last interview regarding uh, demonology, you mentioned the the prayer of Jesus to ward off uh, evil spirits. What is the prayer of Jesus according to the Eastern community? Is that the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, or is that something else? No, the, the Jesus prayer um, is simply, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Or some people say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Some people just say, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Where essentially, uh, whatever the form of the Jesus prayer that you use, essentially what it's doing is invoking the name of Jesus or mercy in your life. And so what we do, um, and this, you know, is a very common prayer rule that someone might get from their spiritual father, is um, we have these prayer ropes where you might have a 33-knot prayer rope that you wear on your wrist. You might have a 100-knot prayer rope that you uh, maybe have in your pocket or you have on your... Um, in your prayer corner, in your icon corner, or something like that. And it'll have 33 knots, 100 knots, 50 knots, whatever. And your spiritual father might tell you, uh, you are, are you praying the Jesus prayer? And he'll say, well, why don't you pray, you know, 33 Jesus prayers just right before bed? Or, you know, maybe do 100 Jesus prayers. And there are different methods, um, it's, it's a long-established practice, which goes back to um, 
the Apostolic Fathers. It was especially um, popular on Monapos, the Holy Mountain, and um, it's really big in Ptolemaic spirituality and the Hesychasts from, say, the 7th century to the 12th century um, is when a lot of this method was really rigorously um, developed. Um, but oftentimes it's paired with your breathing. So uh, Elder Saproni would often say, like, you know, to put your head down on your chest and to inhale while saying the name of Jesus and exhale as you say, Lord, have or have mercy on me, a sinner. Inhale, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, exhale, and sinner. You know, so some people have gotten very technical, and um, is some people might look at this and say, oh, well, that's very similar to what Buddhists do with their mala bead and their, their mantras. Um, and there's, there's an analogy there, but it's, it's not identical. But, um, yeah, we, we really just try and invoke the name of Jesus. And by making it an established practice that you might do morning and night, or maybe take your prayer rope for a walk and say a hundred Jesus prayers or something, when you do it in an established uh, set kind of way, it's interesting how as you go through your day, um, you might just catch yourself breathing the name of Jesus. So you might, you know, bringing the Jesus prayer with you in kind of surprising ways. Well, let's talk about uh, sacred names because um, in my um, presentation regarding um, demonology, I mentioned that some of the um, incantations from the Essenes, uh, the mystical group that was around the same time of Jesus, they would say the names of angels or the name of God, and that would ward off uh, evil spirits. And then in the early Christian community, uh, praying in the name of Jesus became uh, a very prevalent way to address uh, the demonic realm and to bring about healing. So, um, there's other terms that were used by the early Christians, such as uh, Maranatha, uh, come Lord Jesus, or what does that mean? Uh, come, come soon, O Lord come. And then um, you know, they started using Hosanna, that is uh, the Latin version of, of Kadosh, which means uh, holy, the holy, 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 Lord of hosts. Um, and then they say Hosanna in the highest. Or, uh, so... Um, so these, uh, I guess you call them mantras or small, um, like theological statements. Um, when I attended the Coptic liturgy, they were saying Yehid uh, Ratzon after certain um, um, prayers, and that comes from the Hebrew Yehid Ratzon Milfanecha Danai Elochai Velochaya Vutai Chetehei, and uh, I think. Um, let me look it up real quick, but I think that one has to do with, um, um, it's kind of like amen. It's like you are reinforcing what you're hearing or, or giving God praise. Um, how prevalent is that? Like you just mentioned that uh, praying Jesus, like you breathe the name of Jesus, does it have a healing uh, effect uh, spiritually or also like does it have um, like a confirmation of your faith that, What's the theological understanding nowadays? 
Um, we often call, like, in our liturgy and in our prayers, we often refer to Christ as the physician of our souls and bodies. So I would say that it's, on the one hand, a confirmation of faith, and then it's also um, for the healing of my soul and body. And so, um, it, especially when you realize how much your breathing is tied with your physiology, um, and you realize, like, the Holy Spirit, the name the Holy Spirit means the Holy Breath. And so, if you are not breathing, you're dead, right? So, oftentimes, Orthodox prayer and Orthodox spirituality begins in that Eastern way of paying attention to your breathing. Make sure that you're breathing. And that's part of the reason why all of our liturgy is sung. Because you sing, you have to breathe. And you have to breathe deeply. And then, additionally, when we're all breathing together, you know, so if in liturgy we all sing at the same time, in order for that to happen, that means that we need to breathe at the same time. And then in order for us to breathe at the same time, time, or because we're breathing at the same time, what also ends up happening is our hearts start beating at the same time. So, these things which, on the one hand, are spiritual affirmations or um, affirmations of our faith, they also have physiological effects. On the one hand, that are normal and expected and measurable, and on the other hand, the, uh, the fact that our wills and our, our desires and our, you know, our decision to breathe, you know, changes our physiology, you know, because our soul can change our body. And because in this moment, our soul is opening up to God who created our souls. You know, if your soul can change your body, imagine what will happen to both your body and your soul if you let God change both of them. And so it's when we when we pray, we understand that God can heal our body and our soul. So it's it's not you know orthodox orthodoxy one hundred one. It's never either or. It's usually both and. And the the meaning of Yehiratzon means uh, may it be your will. So the whole thing is Yehiratzon milfanecha donai elochenu velochei avotenu. May it be your will, um, God, our God, and God of our ancestors. Well, I'll also say, like, because I'm Antiochian Orthodox, um, there is a very common thing in Middle Eastern culture where uh, I'll, I'll ask somebody, you know, at a coffee hour or something, you know, hey, hey, how are you doing? And he'll say, oh, thank God. It's very common where they, they'll just say, thank God. They won't say, oh, I'm doing fine, thanks. They always say, thank God, alhamdulillah, or nushta'allah, or something like that. And then if you want to say, uh, so what are you doing later this week? It's very common for them to say, uh, I think that we're going we're gonna to go to a baseball game, God willing. Or the priest, when he gives a homily and he talks and he gives his announcements, he'll say, uh... Well, you know, we have a Mediterranean island, or we have a Mediterranean dinner coming up, and it's going to be a great time, God willing. You know, where that's one of those, uh, that's not necessarily a prayer, 
although it is, it's just a cultural thing that just now we say, you know, hey, Sam, how are you doing? Well, oh, thank God. Or, yeah, but are you good? You know, now I just do it without thinking. Or someone will say, so, Sam, are you going to Germany next month? I'll say God willing. I don't know. <laughs> and things that aren't necessarily prayers, but that just, it seeps into our culture, and that just becomes our new way of looking at things. Well, isn't there in the in the book of James, he says, um, don't say you're going to go somewhere or back and forth. Say, may the God, may, may God will it. Yeah, that's, that's the epistle of James. In, um, in, uh, in Hebrew, it's uh, Bezrach Hashem. So it would be, uh, with the assistance of heaven, or with the assistance of, of the, the name, we say Hashem for God or Adonai, uh, the Lord. So, so we say, you know, God willing, if God brings it about or something like that. Joe, any uh, special for- formulas the Catholics say to, to help them through the day? I think uh, one of the most important prayers in the Catholic world is uh, the Our Father, and is uh, and then the Hail Mary after that. Um, uh, so that's off. That's that's a uh, because it's the uh, um, well, according to Saint Thomas, it's the greatest prayer that we can pray. It has everything in it, um, and it starts off with focusing on the person who we're speaking to, um, and that's that's all we really need. Um, so, yeah, and then uh, as I mentioned earlier, in the Catholic Church, mass priests are required to say mass every day um, because uh, the liturgy and the Eucharist is the greatest prayer. Um, and the greatest act of prayer, because in it, uh, uh, we believe in each Mass that um, all of Christ's entire life and act of um, dying for our sins and uh, being a Holocaust offering and uh, the resurrection is all summed up in the, in the, in the act of liturgy. So in, in some Jewish circles, they... They go pray in the morning. They call it a daily minion. So you pray in the morning. You kind of get energized for the day. Um, what is this idea of going to mass every day? Um, and I know you mentioned Sam in the last conversation, the one before, that uh, there's not mass as often or it's once a week or uh, in the Eastern Rite. But um, what what happens? Because a lot of people have. Uh, the understanding from Catholicism is kind of like the medieval theology where you have to be in God's grace and have partaken of the Eucharist, have confessed for you to be clear that if you get run over by a car on your way to work, uh, you're not going to be stuck in purgatory or you're not going to be in trouble. Uh, is, would that be the reasoning for, for going to Mass every day so you're in God's grace? Or is it... Um, part of, of being a, a pious person that you go above and beyond from what you're required and you're just, um, you know, you're looking forward to going to Mass to, to be with your fellow Catholics. I think the reasons are as different as the people who are doing it. So you can go, you know, you can go to Mass every morning. Like we, like I did when I was in the community St. John, we had Mass every day. And you can go every day. Um, and sometimes be, you know, half awake, and, and 
you, you're in the intent matters just as much as the, the formal act of being there and doing it. Um, which, uh, is important. So, but, but I think to, to answer the your question in general, it's like, it is, um, people who want to live their life more piously will go to mass and will be, you know, the seven o'clockers every morning, um, at St. Jude's down the street that, um, that are going to go before work. And that's, that's one reason why the church, I think, offers it every day. Um, you have, in the Catholic world, you have, uh, you have slightly different, um, being a parish priest and having churches that are in the communities, uh, mass is really there for the people and for the priests to celebrate every day on behalf of the people. Um, and religious orders, especially ones that are cloistered, so you have like the Carthusians, um, you know, the Benedictines to some degree, uh, the monastic orders, they're also for, uh, they're living their life, their contemplative life, uh, for themselves, but also for all the world, and the best way that they do that is to have it and uh, is to offer mass and uh, private just in their community, and the people from outside are not necessarily welcome. I mean, they're welcome, but in the spiritual sense, you can't physically be there. Um, what is this that um, you just mentioned? What what type of mass is this? It's another different type of mass. It's just the the reality, uh, what do I say? Mass is offered for the same reason in every Catholic church around the world every day, every day for the same reason. Um, to participate in the life of grace, so in God's own life, and for, for the life of the world. So that uh, every Catholic and every Christian can participate in God's life in a more intimate way. So, um, but that just takes place, I guess I was saying, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the the manner is, is just slightly different in a religious community where um, it's not open necessarily to the public and you have what sort of like for it. So you're, you're, yes, like our people do it to be more pious. If you, if you want to live a more intense and intense religious life, you know, you would join a religious order so that you could participate in the mass with your religious community on a daily basis. Um, and that forms, your community there much more intensely than it does in like a parish community out uh, in the city where you're going to go to mass with a bunch of people that you don't really know necessarily that well mass is, is still mass you don't you don't necessarily have to go as, as a regular lay person every day like I was saying before but in a religious order you you're going to be there because it's something that you do as when you join the community that's I mean, that's the most important Catholic orders to participate in liturgy together. Well, let's take this opportunity to dispel some myths, and that will be the last question for both of you guys. Uh, you know, some secular and other individuals have these kind of conspiracy theories that um, Christianity is, um, I don't know, they have a lot of different conspiracy theories about Christianity, but they would say that um, it's just a... Um, there's all these secret um, meetings and secret stuff. Like the reason that there's a curtain is because who knows what they're doing in the back, or um, it's like a boys' club, or um, you know, you just mentioned uh, that the monasteries have stuff that is for 
the the members of the monastery or the monks and and, and the recruits or the people who are learning um do you guys um uh, have you ever encountered people saying you know that's just um kind of like bringing back a lot of um stuff that was going on in roman times where there was a lot of um like sh shadowy um like cabals of people and uh, secret knowledge and things that are not for the masses and that the leadership structure kind of makes it seem very secretive and very um, like standoffish. Uh, how would you encounter someone that they would start kind of tying everything in stuff that we all hold as sacred? You know, every community has their, their rights and their special service and stuff like that. Like we, I hear a lot about the Jewish community being portrayed as, um, you know, coming up with ways to take over the world and stuff like that. Um, how would you um, describe your community in a way that um, would counter those type of, of theories where people feel left out or they feel that it is uh, kind of an elite group that is kind of, um, what's the word, uh, elitist or clickish and that you don't people don't have access to it i know that if someone was doing a documentary about either the roman catholic church or the eastern community they would let them um see some of the things that happen behind the scenes but um is, is that part of the sense of the holy that n not everybody is um is purview to the things that the people in leadership have access to and, and that's kind of like that adds to the mystery and the and how special these rights are? Um, well, I, I would just say that, um, so for instance, in Orthodoxy, um, when it comes to our temple, you know, or we call a church building a temple, by the way, um, and there's that iconostas that I talked about earlier, you know, that wall of icons in front of the Holy of Holies that separates. Um, there's, there's a part in the liturgy, uh, namely the priest communion um so like all the liturgy happened and then the priest and the, the people behind the altar are having communion and uh they do that before they give communion um they come out and give communion to the people and my favorite churches um will actually draw the curtain closed so you can't see the priest having communion and um the reason i like this It, it's not because the priests are back there doing something really overt, or, I mean, like, doing something covertly, you know. It's not like they're doing something so, that needs to be hidden from other people. But the reason I like having these big iconostasis blocking off, you know, there, there's about, on any given Sunday, there's probably about a dozen people, at least a half dozen people behind the altar serving. Altar boys subdeacons, deacons, priests, sometimes bishops, and they're doing things like uh, getting the incense ready, they're uh, getting, they're boiling water to put into the gifts, they're getting the gifts together, they're doing all this kind of stuff. I don't want to see that. <laughs> It's like when you go to see a when you go to see a play You don't want to see the people tugging on the ropes and, you know, getting the props ready and doing the stuff like that. That's not, that's not so important. And likewise, the priest has 
prayers that he says that no one that no one else says. And you can read them like they're printed in the book. We're saying our prayers on top of his, um, but they're prayers that he needs to say. They're prayers that are good for him to say. They they're not fitting for us to say them, and maybe they're not even fitting for us to hear. But um, I like that we have these icon screens that are filled with images of the saints. And so I look at the saints, and I talk to them, and I, I look at them, and they look back at me, and um, I have a moment of communion with them, and I talk to them about what I'm going through. My prayers and theirs are united, and especially when it comes to, like, the priest's communion or something like that, where they draw the, the, the curtain shut, so I can't even see the priest having communion. I'm very distracted whenever I go to churches that don't pull the curtain shut because I'm looking at the priest and I'm like, well, how long does it take you to cut up the bread, man? Or like, how long, you know, like how long does it take you to drink communion? Do you really need to drink out of the cup like three times? You know, how many priests are getting communion back there? You know, I'm asking questions that don't help me in prayer. And so when they draw that curtain closed and I just look at the icons of Christ and his mother or John the Baptist or you know, any other saints that are on that iconostasis, it brings me back to the prayers that I need to say and um, keeps me from being distracted. So I would say that's fundamentally the way that we look at things. We're not, if you want to ask a priest, what are you doing back there? You know, he'll tell you, he'll talk to you, but we're fundamentally trying not to distract people from the prayers that they need to say. So Joe, what are you guys hiding in the sacristy? I think in the in the Roman world we have a really a big challenge with that. Um, I've had a roommate's friend, girlfriend come over, um, and she wanted to go to mass with me, and I'm like, "That's great, let's let's go." And the um, as soon as we got there, like an hour before, she was asking me all these questions about, "Okay, what do I do when I go?" And like, "What is it like?" So I, she is a Protestant background, and so I asked her some questions and about what her experience was like, and then I tried to um, explain the Mass to someone who's never gone is like, I don't know, it's like trying to describe, it, it, it can be very complicated um, if you haven't grown up in it, so just like walking into liturgy is, is a bit of a process, so what I tell people to do is just... Um, just go and don't worry about when you stand up, when you sit, when you're supposed to kneel, what prayers you're supposed to pray at what times, um, and just go and just pray privately and to, to yourself and just take note of what's going on and what you're thinking about, what you feel. Um, and But I, she asked me, so I explained a lot to her. So I think um, there's, because of all the, I think it's inherent of any ritual that's foreign and we're not really sure where to put it or what to do with it. And um, regardless of what religion it is, um, one thing I would say about the Orthodox Church and having gone with Sam to Orthodox liturgies before is um, it was, you know, the, the, the physical practices were different and it was like kind of strange to me and, and not strange, but, uh, beautiful, but as soon as you walk in, then you you reverence and you kiss an icon. And I was like, well, do I do I do it? Do I kiss it, or do I just do my own thing? Or there's no one really there at a Catholic church in 
um, to like explain things to you before you go. Um, and I had the same thing going in there, but it was fine. Like I, the, the simplicity, um, uh, in the East, in the Eastern or in the Orthodox churches that I've gone to with Sam, I really admired and I liked, um, I think we have in talking to non-Catholics about joining Catholic church. The thing I emphasize is that I haven't done it in a while, but it's just talking about how all of this, like liturgy um, and the different ministries is all part of the same thing. And that's having a relationship with God. And so it, it can be a bit daunting um, to get through some of the, the details, but I think all that stuff is really, is important, but it's, it's secondary um, because the formal stuff will take time to figure out no matter what you're doing. It's like, it's almost, in, it's almost, it's kind of like the thing of like starting a new job. You know, you're not going to really figure out all the formal stuff right away, you, but you're still there for the same reasons as everybody else. So Sam has some dad to his. Um, one thing that Joe was kind of mentioning that I realized I should probably mention because it applies to both of our uh, religions and it's something that people come across when they walk in is that we close communion only to people of our tradition and so like um, only Catholics can receive Catholic communion only Orthodox can receive Orthodox communion and some people who come from a Protestant background look at this as um, exclusionary or something like that but that's not in my experience, and from where I think we're coming from, we don't think that's the case. And in fact, we think it's a charity to other people that we deny them communion or that we don't allow them to partake of it haphazardly. Um, in Orthodoxy, we prepare for communion by going to sometimes confession before the Sunday. We go to, um, well, we fast. Um, from the night before, and we don't eat anything before going to communion. And it's through our acts of preparation that we um, can partake of it and know why we're partaking of it. Um, it's all kind of happening within that controlled system of symbols, of formation, of communion, of community. And um, in fact, in our in our liturgy, we have this part that says the doors, the doors, which means people who are not initiated, please go to the doors right now. Um, or during our Wednesday liturgies during Lent, we have these things that say those who are preparing for illumination depart, depart all who are preparing for illumination. Those who are being catechized and preparing to be received Depart, you know, and they're old things that were written in the liturgy that we still say, even though like people still stay for the whole service, even if they're not confirmed or they're not baptized. And but the reason why we used to say those things is so that people wouldn't be moving into the mystery of communion and just getting confused, you know, it's like. By being part of the church body and by having that formation and having that investment and that commitment in the community and also the direction of 
your spiritual father and your brothers and sisters that it's the partaking of communion is healthy for you at that point. Whereas just going in and taking it indiscriminately with no formation or anything like this, that, uh, that would actually be not helpful to the person. So just wanted to add that. Real quick, Joe, um, what part of the, of your liturgy involves that, um, I renounce the work of Satan and stuff like that. Is that for people who are converting or is that, um, part of the, the passion narrative? Yeah, the line is, um, I renounce Satan, all his lies and all his empty promises. And it's from the renewal of the baptismal vows, which during every baptism, um, the, every person who's being baptized professes baptismal vows and all the people in the congregation renew their baptismal vows. So it takes place during that. And then also during, um, um, let me see, Easter. But it's like Easter Sunday or Friday? It is, I want to say it's, I want to say it's Easter Sunday. So it would be, or during the, or during the vigil the night before when the, when the new people are coming into the church. So so they would be cleared of demon possession if they did that uh, either at either time? Well, I mean, there's no possession. It's not the, the act of exorcism, and there's only two major, there's, um, like in our previous talk we mentioned before, there's major exorcism, exorcism which can only be uh, administered by a priest underneath the permission of a bishop. And that is a special case. And then there's a minor act of exorcism, which is during the sacrament of baptism. Um, but that doesn't uh, it doesn't mean they're exercised from being possessed, because possession is very different than um, it's like closing the doors to your your soul is sanctified and then put into a, a sancti- receiving sanctifying grace positions us in heaven as being a son of God, which can only be removed um, through an act of uh, apostasy or, or mortal sin. But even mortal sin can be forgiven, and um, God never gives up on us. So the other, the declaration of I, I renounce Satan, all his lies and all his empty promises, is an, is an act of the will that is a, in a, putting yourself in agreement with, with God taking yourself out of the, the, as it says in scripture, the kingdom of darkness and moving into the kingdom of light or the kingdom of the, of a son of God. And, um, it removes, it allows grace to come in. And so it would not remove, um, uh, it's not possession, but it has to do with oppression. So same as I'm done. Also, I want to say that during, uh, when, uh, when we do baptisms in the Orthodox church, uh, I, I just recently became a godfather back in March. And, uh, <laughs> during the service, uh, we have that line about, you know, renew, renouncing Satan. And in the liturgical books, the priest says now spit upon him. And it says the godfather spits on, uh, towards the, the, the western end of the or the south side of the church or something like that the west and i was like oh really he's like yeah but we'll clean it up later <laughs> my my greek friend was saying that um if you think that someone has an evil eye you like pretend to spit at them to uh take away the evil eye or something like that and that's a, a greek tradition uh yeah that's um 
that's right in the Orthodox service, which you spit on the devil. Okay, very interesting. Well, thank you so much, guys. It's always a pleasure to have you guys on the show. Mm-hmm. Always glad to be here. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, it's a good conversation. Talk to you soon.